Chapter 5, we've been working our way through, has been dealing with purity and the church. And uh, this last section, verses 9 through 13, is our text. And um, it affects how we view the church. As we've seen, um, even back in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, your boasting is not good. This was a church that seemed not only to embrace and accept immorality amongst its members, but was proud about the fact that they were accepting of people who were so uh, much like the world and yet could feel very comfortable in the church. And so Paul is confronting them on that situation. As one commentator wrote regarding this passage, he says, a church exposed to corruption would do well to sing in a lower key. They seem to be quite joyful about how accepting they were of, of sin and immorality and and really, it should be a, a, a mournful thing for the church to think about that kind of corruption in its midst. And this morning, as we continue looking at this passage, um, it's not really an easy passage, us, at passage for us to study because it may leave us asking questions like, well, how do I develop new friendships then? And how do I distance myself from certain friendships that are in my life? And how can I even end certain friendships? And those may be business partnerships. It may be social friendships. It may even be romantic relationships. But we want to please the Lord. And because our friends are very dear to us, this is the type of message that will help us to reestablish our priorities. When thinking about priorities, I often uh, ask people what their priorities are, and sometimes when people come in for counseling, we start to talk about priorities, and and I have them do a little exercise I'm going to have you do now, either in your mind, or if you have a pen, you could write down the following words. I'm going to give you six words, and then we're going to prioritize them. I'm giving you them in no order, uh, officially, but the first one is God. The second word is self. You can write these down or just... Think of them if you don't have a pen. The third one is work. The fourth one would be friends. The fifth word is family. And the sixth word is church. So we have God, self, work, friends, family, and church. And I would like you to think about those and put a number next to them. Number one is what is most important to you. And the way you're deciding this is if one of the, if you got these two issues, say you have between friends and God, and you have to give up one to keep the other, which one would you give up? In other words, if your friend said to you, it's either us or God, you're going to say, it's God, right? So that's the question that you're asking as you prioritize these. So just go through, through these, God, self, work, friends, family, And lastly, the church. So if you're still working this, I'll start with the list because you should have a number one next to God. I mean, that's that that's uh, I I don't expect too much kickback on that this morning. Uh, Although if you want to push back on that, I'm open to it. Uh, But God really should be first and foremost in our life. Scripture is clear on that. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And so when we think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
we are to have, they are to take first place in our life when we repent of our sins and trust in God uh, and Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we, we realize that God is number one. Any time where God is not number one in our lives, we are guilty of idolatry, of worshiping something or placing someone or something at a higher place above God. So number two, what comes for number two in your life? Family. Anybody else? Church. Myself. Does I hear myself? No, sorry. Um, <laughs> friends. All right. Well, depending on how you define things, I believe that the church should be number two. The church should be number two. Um, and the reason being is if your family or your friends said you give up the church or you give up us. We can't stand you going to church anymore. You are going to continue to go to church. You're going to continue not just to go to church, but be a part of a church and belong to the church. Because if God is your highest priority, then you should be in a church and part of a church. And the idea that you could be a believer and not be associated with a local body of believers is foreign to the New Testament. We don't have any kind of concept of that. As I've said before, if you were to go back in history and say to uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, meet him, and uh, he would say, what church do you go to? He'd say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really go to church. He would say, how is that possible? He wouldn't have any category for that. And so... um, and, and, of course, you know, we have examples throughout Scripture of where the church takes priority over family, uh, the most extreme probably being Acts 5, verse 8, where Sapphira chooses to uh, stand by her husband, who she thought was alive, uh, and, um, and, and rather than be honest with the church leaders and really with God. And so in Acts 5, 8, Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Pretty dramatic. Um, we know that in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is referred to as the family of God, um, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Um, the church is really the pattern for the family. Uh, when we look at Ephesians 5.25, one of those passages we often turn to when we think of marriage, but the relationship, what he's really talking about there is the relationship between the church and Christ, and the closest relationship we can think of on this planet is the relationship between a husband and a wife, but that is patterned really after the relationship between the church and Christ, uh, or Christ and the church, actually, to keep those in the right parallel uh, idea. So this idea that If somebody comes to you and says, how is it that your marriage is working so well, you should be able to say, well, it's because we decided not to make up our own rules about how to do a marriage, and uh, I I decide to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and she is following me as the church follows Christ. And so she treats me as though I were Jesus Christ, and I lead her as though I were Christ and the church, and that's what we endeavor to do that. And if people say, why is your marriage such a wreck, your ultimate answer would be because we decided to follow our own pattern and we're not following Scripture's 
pattern for the church. Um, and of course, the family is temporary, but the church is eternal. We know that, right? Matthew 16, 18, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Not only that, but the church should not be neglected. Hebrews 10, uh, 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to good love and deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thirdly, I would make a case that the third item on your list should be family. Should be family. Uh, because um, uh, if, even if your husband or wife, because they, they you know, if they, if they don't like the church or if they're not a believer, even if they're an unbeliever, you should stay with them if, if, you're, if they're willing to stay with you, according to 1 Corinthians 7. But it says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, if an unbeliever one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so if there is an issue where you're married to someone who cannot stand the work that Christ is doing in your life and does not want to be about around Christ or Christians, and they leave you, you are advised to let them go, not to force them to stay. God doesn't want uh, the pattern for marriage to you saying, I will never let you go. You will never leave me. I don't care how miserable life is for you and our family. You must stay. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, in another sense, the family is really a prerequisite that determines whether or not a man is qualified to be a leader in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church? And so we see the family really as a proving ground for fathers. The ideal there is for every father to be shepherding their own family. So we have God, family, sorry, we have God, church, family. Fourthly, what, what's fourth? Work or friends? Oh, this is like... I work with my friends. I work at McDonald's. Now, um, I would say work, yeah. Work provides for your family. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And it is important for believers to work and to provide for their family. Um, and uh, so... Um, that's, that's important. After that would be a close second with friends who are fifth on our list. Um, 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if your friends are telling you, hey, man, it's either us or work, you know, you say, well, if I do need to honor God. And so uh, if I have a family, that family needs to come above, you know, I need to provide for them. And so I'm going to work. And then uh, number six is self, the last one on the list. Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done out through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, each one esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you not look only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And Mark 10, 43, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. So I'm thinking about that priority list. Any questions about the priority list? Uh, it's clear, everybody in agreement? 
Yes? You had a Paul Washer thing, yeah? Okay. So yeah, so so Paul Washer's wrong. That's the, no. Um, uh, I know that different people have different lists. The key to this list and the, the the determining factor that I've tried to guide you through was if you had to give up one because the other forced you to give it up, which one would you keep? And so that's how I, I, I made the decision. So that's a good question, and I certainly don't want to contradict uh, anyone else's list. Yes. Yeah, it might be. It might be different for men or women, uh, and it might be depending on what your work is and how dependent that is on providing for your family. It might be, um, you know, if, you know, the, actually, it's a good question. Titus chapter 2 says that women are to be workers at home. I remember the first time that I came across that passage, I was shocked. I was shocked because I knew that there were people who believed that um, that, uh, you know, that made a, a strong case that was unbiblical for women to be in the workplace if they had children at home, and I couldn't under, understand why they would ever take that position. And the way I understand that Titus 2 passage is that if you have children at home, or even your husband, right, that women, your first priority needs to be at home. And that might vary not only for from women and men, but from one family to another. I mean, uh, you might have one woman. I mean, the Proverbs 31 woman was obviously very industrious. She had children on her back. She's working in the field. She's, she's working. She's not lazy. And so that's, we're not ta- promoting that at all. But, you know, take, for example, a school teacher. You might have one woman who uh, wants to teach school, and her kids are in school, and she gets up early, and she... she um, uh, prepares lunches early for them and prays with the kids and gets them off to school. And she teaches and has her lesson plan all done and is able to uh, come home and take care of the kids and help them with their homework and, and shepherd them through any life's issues that happen when, when they're being indoctrinated in the public school system or whatever. And then, and then uh, you know, uh, really be there to serve them and help them and feed them and bathe them and get them back into to bed at a reasonable time, and then she can grade her papers and do lesson prep for the next day. And some women can handle that and still keep their first priority at home, and others can't. And it may be a, a season in your life where you can't or you can't, but you should reevaluate this. And so um, your first priority should be at home if that's what you've been given. And this is important for the, the building blocks of society because if if the husband has the responsibility of providing for the family and that draws him away more time for the family and the wife is also drawn away and neither of you has your fingers on the pulse of your family and what needs are going on there, who's going to suffer? Yeah, everyone. Everyone. And so you really need to keep reevaluating these and say, what should we do this year? What's our plan for this year? Um, So... Uh, But what's interesting about this past year is we've had a really good test to see where our priorities are at with the church. How high of a view do we have of the church? And I will be the first to confess that uh, it didn't take very long for me to get used to going without church for a period of time. Uh, I, uh, you know, we have a busy life, and all of a sudden, 
we had a really good reason to shut things down. We thought things were going to be a lot worse than they turned out to be, as bad as they were. Everyone thought it was going to be way worse. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, no, nobody's going to school. The kids are at home, and, and I'm not driving. Nina's not driving. Kids, all the, we're not, our taxi service shut down, and um, we're waking up a little bit later on Sunday morning, live streaming John MacArthur in my pajamas with a cup of coffee, leaning back. I mean, it, there's, a, there's, there's a certain, you know, hey, I could get used to this, right? I mean, and... Um, To be honest, if you have a high view of the church, that also requires some discipline, right? Because you're not just a spectator. You're not just sitting back and and sitting on your couch and and coming in as late as you want or as early as you want. You're coming to worship. You're preparing your heart. You're coming to serve others. You're involving, sometimes that service requires a lot of extra time and energy and so if, if you have a valid reason to stop and slow down, it can be nice. It's important to rest. We're not saying that. Uh, and some people have valid circumstances that mean that they need to slow down and rest for longer than others and be away for longer than others. But we get that. Here's the thing. When you realize it's time to go back to church and your heart is a little bit, it's kind of grudgingly delaying the process. And... Um, you know, uh, your heart is really struggling to get back to regular worship and service to our Lord, it's because of our view of the church. It's because we are slipping into a lower view of the church. Christ died for the church. The church is the sphere of something that is very special. And when the family of God fellowships together with care for one another and we worship him together, we have a love for the truth together in God's word, There should be also a concern for purity in the church, and that's why it's good for us to look at 1 Corinthians, because Paul was getting into their priorities. And since we also struggle with priorities from time to time, this is a helpful passage for us. For them, they were... uh, Purity was obviously an issue because you had a man, according to chapter 5, verse 1, who was living with his father's wife, and the church seemed to be in full acceptance of this when the world was abhorred, that sort of thing. And so we have really our passage from 9 down to verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul gives two warnings concerning purity in the church, Uh, two warnings concerning purity in the church that will help us really to, uh, to deal with immorality around us. The first warning is this, purity in the church is not maintained by avoiding immoral people of the world. Purity is not maintained by avoiding immoral people of the world, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul obviously had written to them prior to this, a letter which is not uh, deemed to be uh, scripture. Paul wrote many things, I'm sure, that were not deemed to be scripture, but the early church recognized this book, and so this is called 1 Corinthians, even though it wasn't his first letter to them. But he had written to them not to associate, but they had misunderstood him. So he's writing again now to help clarify this in verse 10. I did not mean it, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and the swindlers nor, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. 
There, so there are some people who think that the way for the church to remain pure is for the church to hide itself as much as possible and have as little, as, as little contact as possible with anyone who is in the world. And some Christians have isolated themselves so much from the world that if you were to ask them who they interact with that is not a Christian, they might have a tough time coming up with somebody that is more than a superficial relationship. Other people have so many friendships with unbelievers, and they, have, they live so much like unbelievers that besides the fact that they attend church on Sunday morning, there's very little difference in their lifestyle from their unbelieving friends, and it would be hard for people to pick them out as a believer. So there has to be a balance. Scripture teaches us this. On the one hand, we shouldn't isolate ourselves, but on the other hand, we shouldn't be so intimately involved with people in the world that we are uh, conformed to be like them. And Romans 12 says this. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4.4 4 says, though, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we are constantly faced with this balancing act. Um, and we're to be in the world, because Paul makes it clear in verse 10, even though there are immoral people, those are the sexually uh, deviant, porneia is the word there, we get pornography from it, but it has the idea of fornicators, uh, greedy or covetous, swindlers, extortioners, idolaters, who we already said anyone who, who prizes something or someone more than, than God. But if we wanted to avoid them altogether, he says at the end of verse 10, you would have to go out of this world, which soon may be a possibility for you, some think, uh, because I read an article this week, if you're interested, by a man named Hank Rogers, not to be confused with Buck Rogers, but he's the founder of, sorry, thank you, that was an older joke, uh, um, who's the founder of the International Moon Base, I'm sure you're familiar with that. He's in Hawaii now, they're they are experimenting with prototypes in Hawaii that could be built on the moon by robots, and then people could go up and live in these habitats. Um, in an article from October of 2020, Rogers, that's Hank Rogers, is quoted as saying, I want to have a, this is a quote, I want to have a permanent settlement on the moon's surface by the end of the decade, end quote. So that's good news, I suppose, for those who think they want to get out of this world, except for the fact that the moon is not out of this world. Because the word for world in 10 is the word we get cosmos from, has several meanings. One of them is the sum total of everything here and now, the world and the universe. It's pretty hard for you to get out of the universe in this life. But uh, the, 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 the way this word can be understood, I think, in 1 Corinthians 5.10 is it's talking about the system of human existence. And so uh, it's contrasting to the heavenly realm. It's the worldly realm. So if you move to the moon, but there are other humans that move there with you, you're still in this worldly human system. Uh, and, or if you move to the moon alone, but you're dependent on other people to send you things like, I don't know, food, oxygen, uh, whatever you might need on the moon, um, then you're going to have to deal with them as well. So the Bible's clear, we're supposed to be in the world. There's several passages. Matthew 5 tells us to be salt and light. Matthew 28 tells us to go into the world and make disciples. 
Matthew 9 says that the world is God's harvest field. We are laborers in it. Philippians 2, 15 and 16 says we're to always hold out the word of life, that is the gospel, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. So I guess this leads us all up to this question. How can you tell if your friendship with somebody who is in the world is healthy or unhealthy? Yes, Stephen. Okay, when you stop influencing them and they influence you, that would be one, sure. That would be, is it, are you effective are you, or are you affected? So are you being effective in, in reaching out to them or are you being affected by them where you're conforming to the world? Yes? Okay, so that, that's, it's a little unclear, so we've got to be careful here. You said if, you're, if your friendship is like iron sharpening iron, but that iron sharpening iron is one believer sharpening another believer, and so we're not thinking about unbelievers sharpening us in the Word because unbelievers are really enemies of God, and so they're living for something that is, is really going to try and pull us away from God. We need to recognize that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't have a certain level of friendship with them. So I'm sure you meant that, but I hope that's, that's helpful. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. So, so evangelism. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. So these three examples, Steve and Di and Paulo, you all are exactly what I have in my notes. You got the three E's, okay? The three E's are the grid we run through to see if, we, if we are, our friendships are balanced. And those E's are uh, enemy, evangelism, and effective. Enemy, evangelism, and effective. So the enemy is, do you recognize that your friend is an enemy of God? Because James 4.4 4 teaches that they are an enemy of God, that friendship with the world is, is really at enmity with God, that is against God, that they're opposed to God. And so you need to realize that you're developing a, a, a friendship, or you may have a friendship with someone who used to be friends with you prior to your faith in Christ, and you both were enemies of the world, and that friendship still carries on to a certain degree, but not to the same degree as it did before because you're on edge a little bit because they are being pulled away. You know, when we talk about marriage, I'm doing some marriage counseling now, premarital counseling, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the typical whiteboard premarital counseling diagram is that you have God at the front and you have the husband and wife, and the world says, well, the husband and wife should be continually trying to get closer to one another but the scripture teaches that the husband and wife should both be trying to grow closer to their relationship to the Lord. And as they both grow closer to the relationship with the Lord, they will naturally grow closer to one another. It's a byproduct. It's not the goal. That's why we are living for the Lord first and foremost. Um, but uh, what happens is, is if one is 
is, is going towards the Lord and the other one is not, they get further apart. Um, but, uh, and, and, and the same could be said with people in the world. Just realize they are headed as far away from God as they possibly can be. They, they love their sin more than God. They do not want to be confronted about the sin. They do not want to give up their sin. And so you need to keep that in mind. They serve a different master. And so what's important to them is not important to God and not important to those who follow God as the most important thing. The second uh, E, we have enemy evangelism. Uh, we need to be appropriately... Um, making disciples of all nations. We are, in one sense, all of us are expected to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And so we do need to be witnesses, as we've read before. And um, so when someone comes to you and they're an unbeliever and they share their struggles with you, it's an opportunity for you to encourage them and not to degrade them or belittle them, but to say, you know, uh, they say, well, I'm really suffering. Well, why do you think you're suffering? What do you think is bringing this about? And the answer is that we live in a sin-filled world, and Scripture demands that all of us should be holy before God. Trusting in God doesn't mean that we won't suffer. In fact, it may mean more suffering, but it has hope. It has purpose. And so we need to be careful that we're not trying to tie all of sin to specific individual sin or all of suffering to individual sin. Um, But when we think about uh, our purpose is to evangelize others. That's one of our purposes. And then sec- thirdly, is it effective? Is your influence effective? Um, Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without complaining and disputing so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And again, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world. So nonconformity does not equal no contact. But conformity to the world means you need help. Keep the three E's in mind, enemy evangelism and your effectiveness. Um, and that should be part of our thinking. We think about fellowship and partnership um, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is a passage often quoted regarding this, which says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So that may mean that some of your business partnerships, some of your romantic relationships, some of your spiritual kinship that you think you have with people, you need to back away from those relationships. And we often get trapped into two extremes, where on the one hand, we think the church should be completely isolated from the world, and invariably what happens with that separatism is that the church hides its sin from the world. So sin is, is hushed. We don't talk about that, or it's covered over in an inappropriate way. And that's the wrong view for the church. Uh, on the other hand, the other extreme is that the church is very much like the world, and sin is so prevalent in the world that the world can't see any difference between the church and the world. And so that's a wrong approach as well. And purity, as we've seen in these verses 9 and 10, is not maintained by trying to avoid immoral people of the world. Secondly, a second warning we find in our passage is that Purity in the church is maintained by not accepting immoral people in the church. So we don't 
maintain it by avoiding people in the world, but we maintain it by not accepting worldly people in the church or immoral people in the church. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside? God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the instruction here is that those in the church should not associate with anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ and yet is not living like they are a follower of Christ. How far do we go with this? This is a what are the implications here? I once had a, a, we had a young man in our church um, who we disciplined out. He had a drug problem, and his friends had con- confronted him, and he claimed to be a believer, and he sent them away, and others went to him, and finally they came to the elders of the church, and we, we, we uh, went to him, and he, he would not repent and so uh, he wanted to live his own lifestyle. We, we went to him, and we confronted him with a, a letter, and, um, uh, and we mentioned him from the pulpit in our communion time, and we told the church eventually that we were to treat him as an unbeliever. Years later, this individual repented, came back, stood in front of the church, and thanked them for the way that he was disciplined out. But during that time in between, some of them who knew this young man said that... Uh, uh, we work out at the gym with him. We used to always meet at the same time. We always used to work out together. So are, can we not even work out at the gym with him? Uh, so how far do we take this disassociation? What, what, what are your thoughts? Yes. Okay, so as long as food's not in the equation, you're okay. So you can be with him at the gym, but the minute he pulls out a protein bar, you're in trouble. You got to get out of there, right? I saw those protein bars over there earlier. Um, so, uh, and, and, but then the question comes up, and I've been asked this many times, well, what if it's your family? What if there's somebody in your family? And, you know, how do you not eat with a family member? Yes. Right. Okay, without mentioning specific people, we have a hypothetical situation here <laughs> where, uh, let me get this right, you're under the authority of your parents, and your grandparent is maybe not living for Christ, but claims to be, and so, uh, but your parents, who you are to honor, says that we need to honor as family the grandparents, and so we need to go over and be with them. So how do we handle these situations? And I I think to try and bring some clarity here, the key is association. 
It's actually a pretty impressive word here in the original, um, verse 11. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. The word there is actually a word that can be translated to mix up with. And I think the, the idea is not that you'd ever see them, not that you'd never talk to them, not that you would ever even maybe be found at a table with them. The question is, are you associated with them? When people see you, do they think, hey, there's a good relationship there? Uh, this is a, this is a, um, a, a whole, uh, th- these people are mixed up. They're part of the same lot. Um, and I think that if it's, a, if it's a family member and you're keeping those three E's in mind that this is an enemy of God, I'm here to evangelize this and I want to be affected, evangelize them and be effective in that, um, there is a way to interact. In the case with the gym, I, I, I said, you know, the sad thing about discipline, the sad thing about when someone is disciplined out of the church is that you no longer have that sweet fellowship that you used to have with them, where the guardrails were down and where you guys just loved spending time together and there was that sweet brotherhood or friendship or partnership or, you know, that, 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 you, that you've enjoyed. And if you haven't enjoyed that, you need to join one of our Bible studies and start to develop that because that's, that's really where it, it starts to take root at. And if, if you're not connecting at any Bible study, find another Bible study. Um, but, but, but make uh, everybody go to Paul Twist's Bible study. It is, it is the, the, the friendliest. Um, no, I'm not everybody. Uh, but <laughs> this, is, this is one thing we're trying to really encourage here in Steadfast is we want genuine relationships where you have that sweetness, that the idea of coming to Grace Church is not just showing up to the second service and get lost in the shuffle. When people come to me and ask about membership, I, I ask them, what, you know, or they ask me about what fellowship group should I, should, I, should I go to. I used to help teach the membership class, and I would often get asked, well, what fellowship should we go to, or how do we choose a fellowship group? I said, go over to the church office, get a list of all the Bible studies, find a Bible study near you, and go visit the Bible studies in your area and find out what fellowship group every, everyone in that Bible study is going to. Because it's hard to find a bad fellowship group at Grace Church. Um, and it's hard to find a bad Bible study, but you're going to naturally click with, more, with certain people at certain studies. And so find people that you want to do life with. Because the idea is not just you're going to a Bible study with them, but you're actually then, uh, you know... Uh, getting together with them through the week, praying for them, saying, hey, you want to go out for a cup of coffee? Or, hey, let's go for a picnic uh, on, on Sunday afternoon. You're doing life with other people. This is something we really try to emphasize here. When somebody is disciplined out of the church, that's one of the sad realities is we no longer have that sweet fellowship that we used to have, and they should feel that. They should recognize that, and they should know that because this individual who I was talking about who still worked out with those other two guys realized that everything had changed. Even though they're in the same place, doing the same thing, their relationship was different. They weren't mixed up together with him anymore. And he longed for that fellowship with the church because I think he was a true believer who was struggling with sin, backsliding into sin, and that's why he was later thankful and repented. And to this day, I still keep in contact with him, and he's back in the church. So that's what we're looking for. Is that helpful? Does that help answer your question? Any other questions along that line before we move on? Okay. So when we look at um, this, uh, 
this, this world that we're living in and the church, which is really should be not associated with worldliness. Listen, look at the list of words there in verse 11. Not to associate with so, any so-called brother who is immoral. We already talked about this being a sexually immoral person, like the person mentioned in verse 1. Covetous, which is a word that has lost its impact in our culture today because people use you know, covet, and even greed is seen as something that is uh, okay. You know, our whole culture is really uh, associated with greed. It's one of the biggest temptations that we have in this culture is to see what can I gain. Um, and so it, 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 this word um, really has the idea of desiring something that's not your own. Um, and we have the idolater, who is the worship of false gods, was an issue in Corinth. Really, they had an issue which will come up, we'll see in chapter 10, where there were some who were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and some had so much association with their former life of idol worship that even, even eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols, even though an idol is nothing, and they know it now in their mind, the whole lifestyle would come back to mind and so they, had a, they struggled with that, so much so that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, and they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the Lord's table and that table of demons, or, we provoke, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We also have here a reviler. A reviler is not a word we use very often today, but it's somebody who really abuses others verbally, whether that be slander or attacking them to their face. It's an all-inclusive word to describe somebody who really trashes somebody else with their mouth. And then um, we have a drunkard, which we're, which we're considering in, uh, you know, in, also a problem in Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21, it says, for in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And so, uh, you know, the problem in Corinth in, in chapter 11 was so extreme that some of the people were showing up early to their love feasts and drinking the communion wine early, early and so much communion wine that they were getting drunk and it was they were eating all the food before other people were showing up. So this is a, a church with some problems. Uh, and... When you think about that in the church, I, some have taken that passage and compare it with the eating in this passage and maybe may, may saying that even it's communion that you're talking about, not even eating with such a one, which I think would be obvious. I think it's more the, the idea of association. We're just not going to have that same association. And you, you, you can walk into a restaurant and you could see somebody going across the table in care, trying to urge them to repent, and you see the body language there, it's totally different than a group of, of, of guys or, or gals that are hanging out and say, hey, so good, it's, oh, wow, you know, and the girls be like, and all this kind of stuff, you know, it's, I mean, this is one thing that stood out to me actually since, uh, since uh, COVID as well, is that there are certain, I mean, people that, uh, and, and people groups. You should see the Spanish guys at the, at the uh, you know what I'm talking about? The guys at the seminary. I mean, these guys, you know, social distancing is just less hugging. It's not, it's, it's really, it's interesting. Um, 
I, 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 I watch it now. I notice it more. These guys cannot greet each other without grabbing hold of their shoulders and touching arms. And, you know, it's, man, they've got something. Anyways, uh, extortioners, uh, swindlers, that is. Uh, also in this verse 11, uh, swindler is someone who, um, as we'll see next week, uh, could be an extortioner. Chapter 6 rebukes the church who were so, there were some who were so hungry for money that they sued their brothers in Christ, were cheating to get back what they thought was rightfully theirs. So Paul makes it clear, um, do not even eat with such a person, which raises up another question, is it really possible for a Christian to develop a pattern of sin that is so much like the world that it's hard to recognize if the person is a Christian or not. Yes, and that's something we should be concerned about. Um, and there's a, there is a difference. Um, take a look with me at, at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. Just, just, just skip over to verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6, one chapter over. It says... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's very similar to the list we just went through. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And what happens is that uh, those words describe somebody who is identified by those characteristics. They are known, I mean, they are, that, that is their identity. And so prior to coming to faith in Christ, we are identified as being opposed to Christ. And there are many sins in our life, but whatever sin seems to be most dominant really was your greatest identification. You were a child of wrath. Your closest relationship with God was with his anger. And so when you were prior to coming to faith in Christ, your rebellion against him identified you. When you come to faith in Christ, it says such were some of you, and you're free from that, and you're washed of that, and you're cleansed of that. And Ephesians chapter 2 says you are made alive. You were once spiritually dead, but now God has made you alive, Ephesians 2, 4. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except as which is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Romans 6, if we've talked about as well, says that sin shall not have dominion over you. So when you come to faith in Christ, genuine repentance and true faith in Christ, you are made alive. You are a new creation. You are alive in Christ, and you are free from the dominion of sin, and you're free from uh, the penalty of sin, and you rejoice in that, and there's this great hope and new life. And as we continue to live our Christian lives, we are tempted to go back to our old sin. And if you can picture a heart monitor that you might see in a hospital, uh, prior to coming faith in Christ, you were just flatlining it. It was just beep, just the whole time. There's no, no, no pulse whatsoever. When you're made alive in Christ, you have that beep, 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 you're, you're, you're you're, you're, you're alive, right? I mean, you're, you're living. You're a new creation. 
When you're tempted to sin, it's almost like, hey, there's a heart irregularity going on here. Whatever. I don't know what sound they make. I, I really don't know. I, I just uh, seen it on TV. But the, um, uh, you know, the reality is that you are, you've got some irregularities there, and that needs to be dealt with. And the sooner you deal with it, the better, because the longer it goes on, the more irregularity, the more it sounds like you're flatlining again. And it's hard for us to tell who are on the outside. We don't know because either you're an unbeliever who's made a false profession and you went out from us because you were not of us, or you're a genuine believer who is backsliding to the extent where we need to send you out of the church, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, where Paul writes in verse 5, I've decided to deliver, to deliver one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It appears as though if this person's a believer, they might die outside of the church. God might even use death as a punishment to to remove them from defaming his name. And yet, if they were a genuine believer, they would have eternal life because once you have eternal life, it's eternal. There's no such thing as a temporary eternal life, eternal life which doesn't last. Um, so Paul goes on in verses 12 and 13, talking about judging people. And he says, we're not responsible for judging unbelievers, verse 12, for what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? And verse 13, he answers that question, but those who are outside God judges. So this is a, 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 a simple fact. We should not expect unbelievers to live like believers. And the moment we go around trying to police unbelievers and confront them like they're believers, it's not going to turn out well for them or for you. But according to the second part of verse 12, do you not judge those who are within the church? That, word, that phrase there, that question in the original is worded in such a way where it expects a positive answer. Yes. And it's, again, we see that positive one in the end of verse 13 where Deuteronomy 17, 17, 17, 7 is quoted, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So if, if you are in the church and there is someone who is unrepentant about their sin and they've been confronted on their sin and the, it's appropriate for the church to take actions to say this person should not be here, they're obviously not living for the Lord even to the point where they would be disciplined out of a church for their benefit and for the purity of the church. But primarily, the goal is that they might be reconciled to fellow believers if they are in Christ. So this is not easy for us to do. Um, this is not easy because we don't usually think about people and friendships that we have in relationship to the gospel and what Christ has done but that is what Paul is challenging the church here to do. And I hope that as you think about friendships in your world, maybe you have too few that you're, you've generally developed with people outside of your little domain on the moon. Um, maybe you need to go outside of that and develop more relationships with the purpose of being evangelistic um, and reaching out to those who God cares for and who are lost, but who are in rebellion against him. Any final questions before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for this passage, which Paul was so bold and so clear on to write the church in Corinth. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to think about relationships around us. And while some of us maybe need to develop new ones, the more difficult thing is for those of us who have close relationships with people we should not be in relationships with. I pray especially for those people who in their heart of hearts know they need to have some tough conversations this week, and I pray that as soon as possible they're able to have those in a way that brings you glory and brings about really a sense of evangelism and separation from the fellowship with unbelievers being mixed together with believers. We commit this to you and pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.